take that Bible that you're holding and maybe that you've brought this morning and look back over to 1 John. 1 John, we're really coming to the, the conclusion. Here we've got Easter. Obviously, we'll orient our message next week towards Easter. Please feel free to invite somebody to hear the gospel as you can every Sunday. But uh, we're looking here at 1 John chapter 5, and here again is the beauty of exposition. You come and preach text of Scripture that you normally would not teach and preach from. And here is one of those passages this morning that um, is, is somewhat wordy a little bit, and there's language in there, the water and the blood that Christ came by, that has made it just a a question, and you've read it before, and you've wondered, what does this mean? Well, very well, as we march through 1 John, here we are. Let me pick up the text. You follow along. I will read, and I'll begin reading from 1 John chapter 5, and I'll read verses 6 through 12. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He is born concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. A crucial, crucial passage. Let me pray and ask for the Lord's guidance. Father, as we sit under your word, we're in need of a word from you. We're in in need, Father, for, for clarity, Father, to see Christ clearly, to have a right Christology in our understanding. What could be more important than in our Christian life than the foundation of this truth and what could be more important as I stood in the back and I saw all these little children leave to go be instructed in the word that they grow up around this truth and their parents grow up around this truth and that singles father know this truth would you direct our hearts and would you illuminate our minds that we might see this clearly we ask this in Christ's name amen Now, we've been saying all along that it is critical to have a right Christology. You've got to think rightly about the person of Christ. And this has been one of John's major themes. That theme of having a right view of Christ obviously leads to the assurance of salvation, which is his theme in chapter 5 and verse 13. I drop us in this morning to chapter 5, verse 6, and you'll note there that it says, this is he who came. Of course, the context, if you go back to chapter 5, verse 1, is about the person of Christ. Look what John says there in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. In other words, you don't believe and become born. We were very clear to say that because you are born of God, you believe that Jesus, his humanity, there is the Christ. He's the Messiah that's been promised from the Old Testament. Glance down to chapter 5, verse 5. It there is talking about that we've overcome the world in 5.4. In 5.5, it says, who is the one that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus, and now he does not say is the Christ, but Jesus is the Son of God. And I believe those terms are synonymous. He is the Son of God, deity. He is Messiah. He is the long-awaited Messiah. John looks at those together. But that's what you must believe, that he is human, that he is Jesus, but he's also the Messiah, that he is Christ, but he as well is called the Son of God. So it is our faith in Jesus Christ 
the Son of God that grants us the ability to overcome the world. Now, this theme of Christ is not new to John's epistle. Look back just a couple of chapters in chapter 2 in verse 23. He has been saying this all along, actually in 2.22. There, John is as clear to say, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? If you deny that, John says you are a liar. He says in 2.22, this is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. And conversely, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. It is belief in Christ as the Son of God, as Messiah. Look down at chapter 3 in verse 23. He was so clear there where he said in 3.23, this is the commandment that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. It could not be clear. This is a right Christology. Look over at chapter 4 in verse 2. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not born of God, is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Glance down at chapter 4 in verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Now, whatever one may claim to believe, anyone who does not believe Jesus is the Messiah, is the Son of God, is not born of God. Therefore, a Mormon and a Jehovah Witness who denies the deity of Christ or who denies the humanity of Christ is not a believer. Now, one may ask here, what is the declaration that Jesus, here in 5.5, is the Son of God? What is that based upon? I mean, what's the foundation of the statements regarding our Christology in 5.1 and in 5.5? Certainly, if I took you back to chapter 1, you remember in verses 1 through 4, it is the apostles The apostles, in fact, look back there just for a moment. We're not the apostles telling this this all along, where it says that which was from the beginning in 1-1, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was made manifest and we have seen it. We testify to it. We proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And that which we have seen, we've heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father, and here it is, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So the declaration that that is based upon is on the apostles. But John tells us here in the passage before us, it is not only built off the apostles, but the very basis of the declaration is the testimony of God concerning the person of His Son. And so I've titled this message in the week after Easter, The Testimony of God. That word testimony, sometimes in some translation, it's the word witness. The word testimony, just in this paragraph from 6 to 12, is used nine different times, okay? And so the testimony of God forms the basis of our assurance. In fact, just glance again at the reading, not to be redundant, but look at the end of verse 6. And the Spirit is the one who testifies. Verse 7, for there are three that testify. Verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, here's the key. The testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. 
Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Look at the, in, at the beginning of verse 11. And this is the testimony. So he's dealing here with the testimony of God. And it is the basis of our assurance. Now I was reading a writer this week on the teaching of the Jehovah Witnesses. Very important that at least that I touch on this. okay? Because this is a group of people that claim to be Jehovah's Witnesses. They claim to be giving to you the testimony of God. They claim to be echoing the witness of God. But the truth here in the Scripture that God once revealed, the true witness of Jehovah God is simply this out of the Word of God, that Jesus is the Christ, that He is the Son of God, that He is God incarnate in the flesh. And the so-called Jehovah Witnesses are liars because they deny the very thing which God gives witness in the New Testament and is summed up right here in the passage that we just read. You say, well, what do they believe? Well, you tell me if we're on the same page. And you know, whenever I speak, I'm just, I'm just mindful of those children that went out. And if you're a mom and if you're a dad and a grandpa, it's so important that we understand Christ right and that you begin to pass this on to the next gener- generation. You say, well, they're kind of religious people. Well, you can call them that, but let me be clear what they believe. The Jehovah Witnesses say that Jesus may be called a God. That would be with a small g, but not the God. They say that he is mighty, but they would not say that he is almighty. They say that he was created by Jehovah that he is not a member of the Trinity. They teach that there is no Trinity and that even when you go to the term Elohim, which is a name for God, obviously the ending there, at least in the Hebrew, is plural. They say it's plural in majesty, but not in person. They say that the Son, during his pre-human state, was really an angel named Michael. They further say that the Son did not possess immortality, that He was created, that He was created to die. They teach that when Christ was born of Mary, that He ceased being a spirit person altogether and became nothing more than a mere human being. He is a mere man. That Jesus walked on earth and only had one nature, and that was the nature of of man. They do not teach that he was God in the flesh. Furthermore, the Jehovah Witnesses teach that Jesus took on the role of Messiah when he was baptized. It was there that God made this human being what they would call his spiritual son. And so he was first a created angel, then secondly a created man, and finally he was a spiritual son. As it relates to the resurrection, they deny that Jesus physically and literally rose from the dead. He was, in their teaching, not raised as a human son. He was only raised as an immortal spirit. And his body never, ever came back to life. And that once he sacrificed his body, they would say, he could never get it back. Joseph Rutherford, some people term him as Judge Rutherford, who's a leader of the JW, said that the body of Jesus was disposed of and God who knows where it is will bring it back and put it on exhibit in some millennial museum. This is what they teach. They say that Christ, once a mortal angel, then a mortal man, and then finally an immortal spirit will forever live as a spirit being. That is what they teach. Clearly, okay, they are not witnesses of the true God. They do not echo God's testimony concerning His Son. 
They, in a word, are liars, and they are representatives of the father of lies. They are the devil's witnesses, and they have many old heresies reframed in their system, very old heresies that come from what one writer called ancient Gnosticism. So recognize that what we're teaching and preaching from this day is just another form of what they believe of ancient Gnosticism. Now, as we turn our attention to the Word of God, the, the question that I would ask of you is, why should you believe that He is God the Son? Why should you believe that He is the second member of the Trinity? Why should you believe that He is the possessor and the giver of eternal life? Why should we affirm together that He is the Savior of sinners? Why should we according to 5.1 and 5.5, place all of our faith in the person of Christ. Okay? That is the question. That is what we're after. Why should we believe that He is eternal? Why should we believe that He is eternally perfect? Why should we believe that at all? Now, what we have here is the Spirit of God provides a wonderful testimony Here's what I see as the purpose. To authenticate our faith and provide assurance to our hearts regarding the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You say, well, who is this teaching for? It's for you. And I believe the Spirit of God has given it to us, ever leading John to his purpose of the letter, which is verse 13. Glance down to chapter 5, verse 13. It falls right on the heels of this, where John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, and here it is, that you may know that you have eternal life. And the question would come again, what are you basing that on? So here seems to be the issue. Having placed our faith in Christ, in verses 1 through 5, John is desirous of building our assurance in the faith, and our assurance is based on the testimony of God the Father. Okay? And so this passage provides, I believe, the greatest testimony ever penned in the Scripture regarding the testimony of Jesus Christ. And I say that it's the greatest testimony because it goes beyond any human testimony regarding His Son because this is the very testimony of God regarding the Son. And what God does here through the Spirit is He chooses three witnesses to declare the testimony of the Son that we might have eternal life and that we might have the assurance that follows. And I believe that these three testimonies demand a response from us this morning. Let's pick those up. Let's look first at the testimony of history, okay? Then the testimony of the Spirit that we'll look at, and then we'll pick up the other one the following week in two weeks, okay? First, the testimony of history. And this is a this is a very interesting passage, but, but look at it in verse 6. It's a thrilling passage, though. It says, this is he who came by water and blood. Stop there just for a second. You'll note that the opening words, at least in the ESV, is this is he who came. And it's obviously pointing back, verse 5, except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, verse 6, this is He who came. So it's pointing back to Jesus, verse 5, who is the Son of God. It's pointing back even further to 5.1, that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And so as he's articulating this Christology, John says, by the Spirit of God, this is he who came. And it's put in that language, this is he who came. It's what we call the aorist tense. And often the aorist tense reveals a past historical reality. 
So what John is saying is, this is the one who came and he's looking back. It would be like, go over to chapter 4, verse 9. It's very similar, looking back. Verse John 4, 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God has sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so it's looking back to a past historical reality. Now, now this coming, I don't believe when it says this is he who came, is not referring to his birth, and I'll explain that in a moment. It's referring to his life, referring to the ministry of Jesus Christ. This is the one who came. It kind of reminds me in John 1.15 where John bore witness about him. Here's what it says in 1.15 of the Gospel of John. And cried out, this is he of who I, whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, or ranks before me because he was before me. In other words, this is the one who comes, now he's come, and it's pointing, if you will, to the testimony of history as the centerpiece of our faith. Now, look what it says there in verse 6. This is he who came, and then this description, by the water and blood. And he's pointing back to a historical reality. And you should be taking notes on this because somebody will ask you, your kids will ask you this at one point, what does that mean that he came, verse 6, by water and the blood? Various interpretations have been given at this point regarding their verse 6. And one would think that maybe John is using a language that is familiar to his readers at the beginning, but not so readily understood by us even today. So, What's he referring to? What do you mean he came by water and the blood? There are three dominant interpretations on this expression. One would be, number one, that some scholars, including people like Calvin and Luther, view this water and the blood in light of the two sacraments of the gospel. They believe, do some of these scholars, that the water baptism is what he's talking about. He came in the water, and he came with the blood, and they refer to the blood as the Lord's Supper. But I could hardly think that this is John's thought here. While water may signify baptism, blood does not signify the Lord's Supper. And, and when you think of the Lord's Supper, you think of something that's ongoing. And again, when you're looking at this aorist tense, it seems to be pointing back to a historical reality. Then you begin to think of the context here of the testimony of God, and you're wondering what does the sacraments have to do with the testimony of God. That's one view. Second view, the second major thought, would link this passage, interestingly, with the spear in John 19 that was thrust through the side of Christ on the cross, and out came what? Water and blood flowed from his side. So what they're saying is this is he who came, and it points back to the cross, points back to the spear, points back to the spear in the side, and out flows the water and the blood to prove his death. But the problem there is it makes the statement in verse 6 that the blood and the water came out of Jesus' side when it expressly says that he came by or through water and the blood. And so I don't think it's the best way to look at it. Thirdly, and I think the best way to see this phrase, and I'll try to demonstrate that for you, is to see the water as a reference to his water baptism and his blood looking to his death. If you take those two points in history, they were key points in the life of Christ. The water baptism is where his public ministry was inaugurated. It was there at his water baptism that he was declared to be the son, and it was there at his baptism that he was commissioned and empowered for service at that point. When you look back at the reference to the blood, 
not so much to him on the cross with the spear, but a reference to his death, which signified the opposite from baptism. It signified that his work was finished, that it was on the cross that Jesus declared it is what? Finished. And so after identifying with sinners, if you will, into the waters of baptism, he identified with sinners at the cross by taking our punishment. Now, let me see if I could just elaborate on that. You remember as we've walked through the epistle of 1 John, there was a Gnostic heresy that as John picked up his pen under the inspiration of Scripture, there was a heresy, and it was known as Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was fueled, and I've mentioned this guy before, by a false teacher. And this false teacher that we find in certain writings of church history was named Serenthus. And Serenthus distinguished between the man Jesus and the Christ. And Serenthus taught, as did other Gnostic false teachers, that Jesus was a mere man. That he was born to Joseph and Mary. But that, here's what he taught, that the divine Christ descended upon the man Jesus at his baptism, but then it left him before his crucifixion. So Serenthus and these false teachers denied, here's what they denied, that one person, Jesus Christ, came by water and blood. And certainly Serenthus, as I mentioned, was not alone in this view. The Gnostics taught that Jesus was only a man. Remember, they believed that all flesh was evil and the spirit was good. And since God was a spirit and would never become a man of flesh, they concluded that he was only a man. They concluded that Jesus was a good man. They concluded that he was a fine teacher. They might even say that he was a wonderful example, but he was not, they taught, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Word made flesh. They believed that at the baptism of Jesus, the Christ Spirit, the dove, if you will, rested on Jesus, that he then became the spokesman at that point for God's truth. And they also wrongly taught that prior to the cross, the divine Christ left Jesus the man. They assumed, as I mentioned, that divinity would never suffer crucifixion. And with this in mind, then the Gnostics, follow this, would be denying both the reality of the incarnation as well as Jesus' atoning sacrifice for our sins. And what John does is he renounces this heresy. In fact, look back into your text. Is this not why he says here, look at it. He says, this is he, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He says, interesting, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And he said this here because I think John was writing, as he did write, was, he, was it only the baptism that Jesus identified with us? I mean, did you think that we would, maybe John is saying facetiously, deny the blood? And he's, and he's writing this because of the false teachers. And so John says, not water only. And remember, some of the heretics agreed that Jesus was the Christ at his baptism. But John wants to make it clear here that it was with water and the blood. And so here, he's giving the testimony of God. And he's doing so to bolster your faith. You say, well, in what way then was the baptism... And in what way did the death testify by God that this was the Son, Jesus Christ? Well, to do that, you have to go back to the gospel. Look back in your Bible in Matthew chapter 3. This is what here John the writer is after. Go back to the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, what was so significant at that baptism? Let me show you. Certainly, you remember this as Adam went through the gospel of Matthew. But there in chapter 3, in verse 13 of Matthew, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John 
to be baptized by him. John would have, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. John, of course, at that time knew who he was, and he couldn't believe that he, the sinless one, would ask to be baptized by John, who himself was a sinner. But you remember that John was doing a baptism of repentance, and certainly Jesus didn't need to be baptized for repentance, but he did it to identify with sinners. And so look what it said in verse 15. Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for this is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Now watch this. And when Jesus was baptized, and by the way, it means to be immersed. You know that. It means to be immersed in water. And by the way, just a little footnote, if you've not been baptized, I'm going to plan a baptism at the beginning of our summer. And if you're in Christ and you've never been baptized, you need to follow through with the command both that Christ was baptized and in Matthew 28 were commanded to teach and to be baptized. So if you're in Christ and you've not been baptized, you need to follow in obedience to that. But let me not get off the point. Look at verse 16. When Jesus was baptized, immersed into the water, immediately he went up from the water and behold... Imagine this. The heavens were open to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Amazing. As he comes out of the water, you read it there, the heavens are opened. And it doesn't say that a dove came down. You say, well, yeah, it did. No, no, no. Look what it says. He saw the Spirit of God descending, it says, like a dove. So as the heavens part, descending, not a dove, but descending like a dove, the Spirit comes down to rest on him. And here's the key, verse 17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well, what? Pleased. It was the voice of God. And John the Baptist heard that. And so as John here is building his argument, this is the one who came by water. And the one who came by water, the heavens were open. The Spirit of God descends down like a dove and rests on him. The voice comes out of heaven and said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now you say, well, what did John think about that? John the Baptist, not John the Apostle. Look over in the Gospel of John. Look what John said, the Gospel of John here. Look what John the Baptist, I should say. This is John the Apostle's Gospel, but... Look what John the Baptist said regarding this event, because this is the testimony of God. It's the testimony of history. In John chapter 1, in verse 31, or if you back up in 29, the next day saw Jesus coming toward him. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look at verse 31. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. This is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And here's the key statement, verse 34. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is what? The Son of God. Listen, beloved. This is the testimony of God. God regarding his son. 
That's the point. This is the one who came by water. This is the one the heavens were opened. This is the one the Spirit, like a dove, descended and remained upon. And John says, I have seen and I bear witness to you that this is the Son of God. This is the very testimony of God. And so water baptism not only inaugurated the beginning of his ministry, but listen, it was also a divine witness to his identity. The Spirit of God, as we mentioned, descends like a dove. The voice of God was heard affirming that this indeed is the beloved Son in whom God the Father was well, what? Pleased. That's quite a testimony. That's the basis of our foundation. You're placing your faith in Christ. You're placing your faith in the Son of God. You say, well, on what basis do I do that? On this basis that God the Father said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. That's the testimony of God at His baptism. And then there's the testimony of God that His death was miraculous. And, and when, when it affirms that he came by water, it also says not water only, but by the blood. And then you begin to look at all the events surrounding the death of Christ. And you begin to see God bearing witness on his son, not only in the water, but in the blood. Remember in Matthew 27, a supernatural darkness fell on the what? The whole land. Okay. The veil was torn from where? Top to bottom. A supernatural event. The Bible says in Matthew 27 that the earth shook. It says that the rocks split. It says that the tombs were opened. It said that the dead saints came alive. It says that those dead saints that came alive entered the city. And it says in Matthew 27, they appeared to many. And the centurion and those who were with him in Matthew 27, who were keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became frightened and said, truly, this is the what? The Son of God. In fact, not only did the centurion say it, but those who were with him said it. This was the Son of God. And here was God's testimony at the cross. So you, you can just you can continue to go on and more. It's not only the testimony of the cross. What do you do with all the Old Testament prophecy that gave the testimony of what would happen at the cross? Think of Psalm 22, when the psalmist, under the inspiration of the Spirit, speaking centuries later of the person of Christ, when he said, all my jo- joints, or all my bones, excuse me, are out of joints. My heart is melted within me, Psalm 22. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my, what? Bones, not one of the bones of Jesus was broken. You say, why? Psalm 22. It says, they look at me and they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing, they have cast, what? Lots. That's the testimony of God. So this one whom you're placing your faith in, not only came through water, but he comes through the blood and his death at the cross. Think of Isaiah 53, that he had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should even be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with what? Grief. And one like from men whom hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was smitten of God and afflicted. And that's when he said there, my God, my God, why have you what forsaken me? All this bears testimony. The scholar William Plummer said it this way. He he put them together. He said, water baptism with divine proclamation and the outpouring of the Spirit upon him is not merely the opening, 
but the explanation of his whole ministry. Then he said the bloody death upon the cross is not merely the close, but the explanation of his passion. So, beloved, in contrast to Serinthus' teaching or the Gnostic teaching or the cults today, let me be clear, Jesus not only experienced water baptism, but also death on the, what, cross. And I think as we look at this truth, as you turn back to to 1 John, what you want to recognize is this, that the one who was recognized and the one who was crucified was the same person who was baptized in the Jordan River. He is the God-man. That's the teaching of Scripture, that the divine Christ was not only baptized, but he also died on our behalf. And that the one who was baptized and the one who died on the cross was not merely the human Jesus. He was Jesus Christ, both human and what? Divine. Okay? I mean, if Jesus had not died on the cross as a man, he could not have paid for the sins of men. And if he wasn't God, then his death wouldn't have meant anything because he would never have had the power to overcome sin. So here is the testimony of history that he came by water and he came by blood. But there's a second testimony, and this is key. Look what it says there in verse 6. It says, and the Spirit, it says there, and the Spirit is the one who testifies because he is the spirit of truth. So we move from the testimony of history to the testimony of the spirit. And the Holy Spirit here is the third testimony to us regarding the Son. And you might ask, well, how did the spirit testify? It says there in verse 6, the spirit is the one who testifies. You say, how does he testify regarding the son. Well, you don't have to go back there, but I would just say there's a couple things that this means. First, you remember when we looked in Matthew 3:16 where Jesus was baptized, immediately it says he went up from the water, he beheld the heavens were open to him, and this, he saw the what? The spirit descending like a dove. So you recognize right here that at the baptism, the voice comes out of heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But the spirit comes down like a dove and remains on him. And so the Holy Spirit at our Lord's baptism, listen, was a witness to his deity and to the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. He was there. In other words, you've placed your faith in Christ. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. This is the very one who came by water. The voice comes out of heaven. This is the one who came by blood. There was the supernatural elements in Matthew 27. But now it is the Spirit of God that testifies and the Spirit of God that remained on Him. But I also believe that this speaks of the present ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit that continues to testify. You say, well, how so? Well, look down at this scripture again. It says there that the Spirit is the one who testifies. Last statement, because the Spirit is the, what? Truth. It is the Holy Spirit. When when you think of the Spirit, that is His role He is the Spirit. It says there in 5, 6, is the truth. The Spirit is the truth. In other words, you do not have to tell the Holy Spirit to go into a court of law and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, so help me. What? God, the Spirit doesn't have to do that. You say, why? He is God. That's the point. He is God. He is the truth. And the Spirit of God bears witness regarding the person of Christ because He is the Spirit of the truth. In other words, there is no truth apart 
from God, if you will. There's no truth apart from God, and the Spirit is the truth in person. He is truth personified. You say, well, how does the Spirit testify? Look back at John's Gospel, John chapter 15. Look, look back there. Let me just reacquaint you with the work of the Holy Spirit and chiefly what He does. Look, look what it, it says there. In John 15, 26, Jesus, right before he was to depart, said that when the, there's that word, 1526, the helper comes, the paraclete, right? Whom I will send to you from the Father, this name, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about who? Me. The chief role and function of the Spirit of God is to bear witness as to the truth of the person of Jesus Christ. Look down in John chapter 16 in verse 13. Look what it says there. It says, when the Spirit of truth comes, and he's speaking to the apostles here, he will guide you unto all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And so there the apostles were the channels with, with the truth came. And the Father gave us the Spirit to prove to us that Jesus is the God-man who alone gives salvation. In fact, look back at John 14, chapter 20, verse 26. Chapter 14, verse 26. It says that when the Spirit, or when the, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Now you say, what does the... Spirit of God do? Well, it descended on Christ at his baptism, but the Spirit of God also instructs us. Look back at 1 John. Look back there just for a moment, because the Spirit of God is testifying. You say, what is he testifying? Testifying to what? But you remember this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Here's what the Spirit testifies, that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from who? Is from God. So inwardly, in our hearts, by the indwelling possession, you have a testimony made real in your heart as to the person of Jesus Christ. So how so? Look back at chapter 2, verse 20 of 1 John. There it says... But you have been anointed, it says, by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge, giving reference to the Spirit's work in our heart. You've been anointed by the Holy One. Look at 2.27. But the anointing that you received from Him abides in you. In other words, the Holy Spirit's in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So you have that anointing in you. Look at chapter 3 and verse 24. There is that reference again. Whoever keeps God or keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, in 324, we know he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Now, look back to 1 John chapter 5. Watch this. It says there, he came by water and the blood. The Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. And now this in 7 and in verse 8. For three, for there are three that testify the Spirit and the water and the blood and these three, what? They agree. Now you remember in Jewish thinking, in the Old Testament, it took how many witnesses? Either two or three witnesses 
to verify every fact in, in any case. In fact, that's in Deuteronomy chapter 19. The facts had to be confirmed by two or three witnesses. In fact, when you get to the Gospel of Matthew and it's dealing with church discipline, church discipline is con- to be conducted by two or three witnesses so that every fact may be confirmed. This is biblical thinking. This was Jewish Old Testament thinking. You remember when it says if you bring an accusation against an elder in 1 Timothy chapter 5, you need to have two or three witnesses to affirm or confirm or deny every fact. Now watch this. The Spirit here, or the witness of the Spirit, is linked to the witness of the water and the blood. So much so that John says here in verse 8 that the three agree. And when John says that the three agree, it literally means that the three are one. That's what the literal word means. They not only agree, like I agree and you agree. The the three in, in the thought of Scripture are one. And so as John the Baptist said, when he saw the... The, the baptism and the heavens open and the spirit and the voice. He said, I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the son of God. So here's the testimony of God. And then look specifically what the message is and we'll look at it next week. Look at verse nine. If we receive the testimony of men, you would in most cases, would you not? If you trust those If you trusted their character and they were trusted people, you would receive the testimony of men. John says the testimony, verse 9, of God is greater for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. That's the testimony. The three, the water, the blood, and the spirit all agree that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God. And the thought would be, don't you? Don't you? And when you place your trust, not only in the apostles, but watch this, you are placing your trust in the very truthfulness that God has spoken. This is the testimony of God. You don't want to argue with that, do you? In fact, if you're sitting out there And you're thinking, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that Jesus is the Christ. Then listen, you've overcome by virtue of your faith in Christ. And ultimately, what John is doing, he is writing to give you assurance. Look again to verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. He wrote that you would know it. But listen, these three, the water, the blood, and the spirit all agree. It's interesting. Look back at verse 8, just to touch on it. You'll note that John, I don't know if there's significance to it, but he reversed the order. He begins in verse 6 with water and the blood. Then he speaks of the spirit in verse 6 who testifies. But in verse 8, he says the spirit, and he leads out with the spirit because really it's the spirit that is confirming the water and the blood, and these three are one. And so the Spirit's testimony and the testimony of the water and the blood have one purpose, to unequivocally declare that the historical man, Jesus, is in fact the divine Son of God, the only Savior and the King And only he alone can bring eternal life. That's what our hope rests on. And if you place your trust in that, listen, you're basing your faith on the very testimony of God regarding his son, and you will have eternal life. Amen? Amen.